Today's podcast from AUA 2018 will be 019IC, Immunotherapy for the Urologist, Basic Principles, Adverse Effects, and Drug Deliveries. Course director today is Dr. Joshua Meeks from Northwestern University, and he is joined by six other faculty that I will allow him to introduce. But the goal of today's course is to provide a basic and real-world application of immunotherapy for genitourinary oncology. I'll now turn you over to Dr. Meeks. Go ahead and get get started, considering we've got a pretty full uh, course for you here today. So this is uh, immunotherapy for the uro- for the urologist, and um, so we're going to go ahead and begin. Um, we, the way that we've tried to set this up is to talk generally about immunotherapy, uh, and then we're going to talk about the most relevant trials uh, in bladder cancer and kidney cancer. Uh, we're going to talk about side effects of immunotherapy, and then we're going to try and transition to real-world urologists giving immunotherapy, and then at the end of the course, uh, I'm going to just give a brief discussion about biomarkers and how that may be very important. Literally, we found today that uh, the FDA wants us treating pdl one positive patients may be very different than pdl one negative. So without any further ado, I'm going to ask Rob Svatek, oh, there we go, to come up and start. Yep, 15 minutes. Okay. So the green advances it and the green, that's the pointer. Okay. Thanks, Josh. So we can pull up the first set. Oh, gotcha. Okay. All right. So there's my disclosures. And uh, this is the first question. Which of the following is a stimulatory co-receptor molecule expressed on the surface of T-cells that is required for productive T-cell action? Is it A, B71, B, CD86, C, CTLA4, or D, CD28? Okay, so um, the correct answer is CD28, and we will um, we'll sh- talk about this in the course of the... Can we go ahead and start the timer? So the concept of treating cancer with immunotherapy uh, emerged from early observations, uh, clinical observations, that cancer regressed in patients that had a bacterial infection. Um, William Coley is often attributed to the first observation, but in fact, in the early 1800s, there was the first uh, report, 1813, of a tumor regression from a clostridium infection. And the first therapeutic um, use of, uh, of treatment of this was actually in Germany, where Dr. Bush um, treated a sarcoma patient by infect, uh, injecting um, some purulent material and reported some regression of the tumor. But William Coley's um, really attributed the most with a systematic kind of approach to treating these patients. He actually developed a, a toxin and uh, uh, marketed this toxin. Now, his, his first observation in, in a treated patient was um, a, a very famous description. He says that a patient with tumors in his neck and his tonsils developed severe rigors and high fevers after the inoculation but survived to experience tumor hemorrhagic necrosis and had no further remissions. So this was a pretty remarkable finding. He marketed the the Coley toxin, as it were, but 
the, the results were inconsistent. Critics derided this as kind of quackery, and ultimately this coxin went into, fell into disuse, especially with the advent of chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Essentially, the immune system has evolved over time to be able to identify foreign antigens in extremely trace amounts so that um, the identification then subsequently leads to tumor erradi or to eradication. And this is important for killing cells, especially cancer cells, which can harbor antigens. The cancer cells are, are characteristically antigenic because of their um, you know, multiple genetic mutations. And so, therefore, they're subject to eradication by this natural immune mechanism. Um, the most important mechanism, that, and, and the one that we're going to focus on today, is this one shown here, of a cytotoxic T-cell, or also called a CD8 T-cell, eradicating a tumor cell. I want to start with the, the, the building blocks, the fundamental structure of this, and we'll work around. And I think this, it's important to start with this very fundamental T-cell receptor. And so what we're looking at here, on the bottom is a T-cell, and on the top is an antigen-presenting cell, which could be a tumor cell. It could also be other antigen-presenting cells like a macrophage or a dendritic cell. But the two... Oops, can I go back? Yeah, the, so the, the T-cell receptor has these two um, proteins, which are alpha and beta heterodimers, okay? And... They resemble an antibody in structure. They have a variable or hypervariable region here and a constant region. Um, and in fact, the gene rearrangement and the way that these evolved is very similar to antibodies. There's two fundamentally just different things between an antibody and a T-cell receptor. Number one, an antibody has two binding sites, right? It looks like a Y, whereas a T-cell receptor has one. And number two, T-cell receptors are never secreted. They're always um, anchored to the T cell, whereas antibodies are secreted. Now, if we look at this T cell receptor, we see that it's um, engaged to a peptide. So T cell receptors are very um, good at recognizing peptides, and, and they recognize a very specific peptide, about 8 to, eight to 10 amino acids for CD8 T cells, a little bit longer for CD4. But it's not just the peptide that they're recognizing. They're recognizing the peptide in the in the cleft of this MHC molecule. And that's important because if you just have a peptide floating around, it's not going to stimulate the T cell. You actually need the MHC molecule. So often people refer to this whole thing as the T cell receptor. This is actually a T cell receptor complex. So these other proteins, there's an epsilon, a delta, a gamma, another epsilon, and then this zeta, these are all part of CD3. It forms a CD3 complex. That's important because without the CD3 complex, this T-cell receptor basically wouldn't be expressed in the T-cell, and it's not functional. Now, we're going to build on top of that. So we've got a T-cell receptor complex here, which is the, the heterodimer, the alpha-beta subunits. We've got the CD3 complex around it. And then we have what's called a co-receptor. So all the T-cell receptors have either a CD4 or a CD8, for example. And these are important for binding to the MHC molecule. So, for example, in this picture, we have a CD4 co-receptor, which is binding to an MHC class 2. And those MHC class 2 molecules are going to be presenting peptides that are exogenous, that are acquired through phagocytosis, for example, or through endocytosis. 
Whereas a CD8 co-receptor would recognize an MHC class 1, that is an endogenous or cytosolic protein. Now, that alone provides signal 1, but you need two signals for T cells to be activated. If this uh, happens without a signal 2, the T cell will become energic. It won't function. So the signal 2 is often called the danger signal, and that's going to be a co-signal. So this is an important molecule, CD28. It's binding to its ligand B7 on the surface of the antigen-presenting cell, which, which could be a tumor cell. That interaction is critical because it enables the signaling to progress. And so you need that second signal, otherwise the T cell is not functional. Once the T cell binds its antigen and the co-signaling occurs, you get downstream signaling that eventually leads to activation of the T cell. Now, sorry. Now, imagine, you know, T cell is not a circle like a pizza. It's actually a sphere, right? And on, in a T cell, there are, there are probably roughly 30,000 T cell receptors. And so the T cell it has these... Um, uh, um, ability to, to eradicate, completely eradicate a cell, but it needs to be very precise, right? Because if it's not precise, we can get an autoimmune reaction. So there's so much precision here that, that what happens upon engagement is you get a reorganization of the structure. So you see that the T cells are now um, clustering about the cell-to-cell -cell interaction. So they cluster together and they actually form this, this complex called a supra- uh, uh, super, uh, supramolecular complex. There's a central component and a peripheral component. And, and the cytoskeleton of the whole cell is reorganized such that to position this in the appropriate place. So in the beginning, you see that this T cell here is, is now engaging a, a target cell, which may, let's just say it's a tumor cell. And there's no polarization of the cell. But as it's, the T cell uh, is engaged to its, to its target, you then get what we call re reorganization. And the, the Golgi apparatus now is positioned in a place such that it will release these cytotoxic granules directly to that tumor. You can see this nice picture here of these red cytotoxic granules. So why do tumors have peptides and antigens? How do the T cells recognize tumors? Tumors can have specific antigens that were uh, made through, you know, mutations. For example, chemically induced or virally induced mutations. But they can also have re-emergence of, of antigens that may have been expressed but are normally repressed during, um, uh, uh, during um, the development of cells. And these are like, for example, aquafetoproteins or antigens. So in a normal cell, we have self-peptides that are constantly being exposed on the surface of the cell through MHC class 1. But these are all normal, and the, and the T cells recognize them as normal, and there's no reaction. But you had a mutated antigen, a mutated protein, placed on the surface, and the T cell recognizes it as foreign, and the, the uh, reaction is, is, uh, progresses in that manner. So the old paradigm to immunotherapy had some minor successes, but in the large part, over the last, you know, decades, it, it, it didn't work very well. And, and we know that because what FDA-approved drugs were approved, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, not many. There are some, my, some 
uh, successes, but generally that they were mostly failures. And so the old paradigm was, well, we know how this works. We know the engagement of the antigen. So let's just give more of the good stuff. So for example, we'd give cytokines. We know cytokines are good. Let's give more cytokines. We know that the antigens, these tumors are harvesting, having antigens. Why don't we give tumor antigens? And so there was tumor vaccines. Or let's give the effector T cells. Let's actually take T cells from a patient and transfer them into the, to the patient. So they'd actually take melanoma T cells from the tumor and then transfer them back into the patient. For the most part, these, these, cells, these uh, approaches didn't work. Here are some examples. Um, uh, dendritic cell vaccines, tumor vaccines. Provenge is a, an example of a kind of an older paradigm where we actually put androgen presenting cells back into the patient after uh, activating them. There are some of these that work. I mean, engineered T cells, this is very effective for treating B cell malignancy. But for the most part, these cells, these approaches missed a fundamental concept. And the problem is that these came from the ideas of infectious biology. And we were very successful at treating infections, right? Vaccines work for infections. But infections are an external origin. And no matter what, what a tumor looks like, at the end of the day, it's still of self-origin. And so all of these approaches, if you use too high of doses, would have anti, uh, autoimmune attack, uh, uh, side effects. And it also failed to understand this idea of self-tolerance. So you have a tumor. It looks abnormal. It should be eradicated by T-cells. But for some reason, it's created this barrier that prevents itself from being eradicated. It's called self-tolerance. How do tumors do this? They have lots of different strategies, lots of different tricks that they've, they've done. Just a very simple, um, very simple one is they have lost their MHC molecule, so they can't present the, the antigens. Or they've, they've down-regulated their other co-stimulatory molecules, like CD28 that I was telling you about. Or they secrete cytokines that are suppressive and suppress the immune cells. They create barriers or um, uh, uh, structures with, uh, surrounding themselves to prevent the immune cells from attacking. So this is a complicated side, but we're going to just, just go through it step by step here. We talked about the T-cell receptor with its alpha and beta heterodimer. It's binding this peptide in the context of the MHC. It's got CD3 making this entire T-cell receptor complex. You see CD8 here, which is recognizing the MHC, allowing this thing to be active. Now, this would normally transmit a positive signal and allow the T-cell to work. But you have this molecule here, CTLA-4. It's binding B71. Now, B71 is what CD28 binds. Remember, CD28 binds B7H1, B71. That is a co-stimulatory signal. But CTLA actually competes with uh, CD28 and actually competes more strongly. And, unfortunately, and in this case, C CTLA4 will send a negative signal. Now, look here. This is a, an antigen-presenting cell. Maybe let's consider it a tumor cell. It's expressing pdl one a ligand. This ligand's binding PD-1, which is on the surface of the T cell. Upon binding of that ligand, PD-1 then is phosphorylated in its cytosolic protein, uh, in its cytosolic um, uh, uh, anchoring site here. And that then inhibits the transmission of the signal through T of the T cell signal. So if you're going to develop therapy to make this T cell work better, you might could target 
this PD-1 molecule. You might get inhibited. Or you could tar target this PDL1 ligand. Or you could target this CTLA4 molecule. Those are all, all three good targets to look for, and that's exactly what was done. So here's um, an antibody that's binding PD-1, and as a result of that, the, C the T cell is more effective. It's able to release interferon gamma, it's able to release its cytotoxic granules and kill this tumor cell. So it's, it's, we've now found ways to break self-tolerance. And so that has enabled us to see responses in, in, in all three of these therapies have seen pretty remarkable activity in tumors that had been previously like, unresponsive to chemotherapy. The limitations, which we'll talk about more later, is that they have modest responses. There are some biomarkers that are emerging, but right now we don't have a definitive biomarker to, to guide treatment approaches. There's lots of other molecules to be explored. Um, these are just, just, we're just starting with all of these things. What's next on the horizon? The old paradigm works. There's no question about that. And now we're, we're going back to it. So what we're going to see now is using these new checkpoint inhibitors and combining them with the old paradigm, using them with tumor vaccines, or using them with autologous T-cell transfers. We're also going to be using these new things in combination with chemotherapy. Some recent reports in non-small cell lung cancer suggest that that's going to be effective. So in summary, the, I hope I taught you, or I hope I clarified some of the issues on T-cell engagement and the mechanisms by which tumors um, avoid self-recognition. And I, the new paradigm moving forward is targeting these tumor protective mechanisms in combination with some of the old paradigm and traditional chemotherapy. Thank you. All right, let's go on to the next. There we go. So uh, thank you, Rob. That's a great foundation for where all this work can begin. Uh, before we get to physicians giving drug, I think it's important to start with what's being done in the trial setting, because that's really how uh, the data is proven that gets these drugs approved by the FDA, which allows us to get them into our hands. So we'll start with kidney cancer trials. So we're going to ask Brian Shook from Yale to come up. Thanks, Josh, for having me. Uh, I'm just going to go over the current landscape in kidney cancer. And the past couple of years has really seen a revolution in how we treat kidney cancer. It's dramatically different today than what we did uh, five years ago. And give an example why, uh, you know, why we should not be considering SUTENT a standard of care in 2018. Um, okay. So we'll start off the question, besides IL-2, which systemic agent has been shown to cause kind of a durable, complete response in metastatic kidney cancer? A, cabozantinib, B, interferon alpha, C, everlimus and levantinib, uh, D, pazopinib, or E, checkpoint inhibitors? Okay, so um, checkpoint inhibitors, as we see, there are patients who actually can have a complete radiologic response, stop therapy, and st seem to have, a, uh, at least now, a, a durable remission for at least up to one or two years. 
Okay, so we're just an outline. We'll be talking about kind of the historical role in kidney cancer and some of the uh, new checkpoint inhibitors, combination therapies with uh, dual combination uh, checkpoint inhibitors versus some of the uh, combinations with uh, VEGF uh, therapy and also the role in the adjuvant setting. So historically, immunotherapy, uh, the first FDA-approved agent was IL-2. Interferon alpha was used, but there really weren't many durable responses, some partial responses. And uh, this really can be credited to work at the NCI with Steve Rosenberg. Uh, really, they saw patients who had a complete response, uh, but these were um, rare. But when they um, occurred, patients actually could be alive for 10 or 15 years later. But we learned that IL-2 really was not for everyone. Um, and IL-2 really, if it, you kind of target who you're giving it to, clear cell patients who have um, uh, kind of a low limited burden of disease, good performance status, you'd have better response. And this is from Dave McDermott where they looked at patients who uh, uh, were selected. And the response rate was about 30%. Complete response is around 5 to 7.5%. So you can actually still give IL-2. We do at Yale, but we usually try to select it for the best therapies. Uh, now, uh, Rob gave an overview of kind of the checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Uh, we've now moved this to the clinic with PD-1, PD-L1, or CTLA-4 therapy. But really, the first look at this in kidney cancer was at the NIH. Uh, Steve Rosenberg's group really looked at patients with uh, ipilimumab. It unfortunately wasn't really developed further. Uh, there were patients who were treated with just single-agent ipilimumab responses were seen, 12.5% responses. And the interesting observation there is patients who got autoimmune side effects like hypophysitis or enteritis um, did have a pretty good response. So maybe uh, having an autoimmune side effect actually was a biomarker of response. Um, and these patients could get really sick. I was at NIH at the time, and there you know, were patients who actually got colectomies, because if you didn't know how to give uh, ipilimumab, you could you know, have a patient have pretty significant toxicity. But then Susan DePaulian, who was at the NIH and moved to Hopkins, uh, you know, uh, was the lead author of really moving the second checkpoint inhibitor, nivolumab, to the clinic. Uh, and this just phase one trial, when they were looking for you know, either one milligram or 10 milligrams of Nevo, patients had responses. And this is looking at patients with kidney cancer, in the cohort, and patients have, you know, the lower end, patients were having really robust responses, uh, even at one milligram. Um, and in kidney cancer, we always pick on the weak guy. Uh, Everolimus was really approved, second-line setting versus placebo, so it was not uh, any surprise that nivolumab was looked at in the second-line setting uh, in patients who had previously treated either one or two anti-VEGF therapies, and uh, Nevo's dosing scheme was picked at three, um, and patients did have improvement in outcome. The progression-free survival was not any better. There are, there's a phenomenon called pseudo-progression where the tumor may look a little bit larger. Uh, it might be due to infiltrating uh, lymphocytes. But the real proof was in overall survival. Patients live longer, about a five or six month improvement in survival. Um, and that led to the FDA approval about two and a half years ago of nivolumab, uh, which uh, generally people were giving a second-line therapy, but at other centers like Yale, we were giving it really first-line. Um, but then the question is, can you make it better? Well, if one checkpoint inhibitor works, 
and doesn't work for everyone, can you add in other things like CTLA-4 therapy? So uh, in the phase one trial, they were looking at really can you put these together? And you know, the Nevo-3, IPI-3, which is a regimen which is very toxic, was kind of abandoned very early. But looking at patients who were heavily pretreated, can you combine these agents together? Uh, and you give four doses of ipilimumab with Nevo, and patients um, in the phase one trial, if you look on the right, in this phase one trial, heavily pretreated, patients would live two, three years later, which you know is outstanding. And both regiments were pretty similar in efficacy. But if you give the three milligrams of ipilimumab, there was higher toxicity. And as you kind of see, uh, the complete responses were seen in that group, uh, which obviously is very exciting in kidney cancer. And in this checkpoint inhibitor therapy, again, you know, we hope that it's durable 10, 20 years later, like IL-2, but we have seen patients stop therapy and remain disease-free, unlike with like Sutent, you might have a radiologic response and stop, and then a couple months later, it will grow back. Um, really, the, moving this forward in kidney cancer, again, we, peak, we uh, um, pick on the weak eye and Sutent, which is, you know, uh, Sutent and Pazopinib were the common first-line agents by most uh, um, guidelines. Um, we were kind of this was pit against Sutent. And Ipinevo uh, was looked at in patients who were basically treatment naive, who had good performance status. Um, uh, they were either you know, intermediate or poor risk or favorable risk IMDB classification. And they were compared with the same dosing scheme before. They got Nevo plus four doses of uh, Ipi versus a standard Sutent regimen of four weeks on, two weeks off. And uh, this came out last year, and uh, updated ones are in New England Journal. But uh, if you give Ipi a Nevo, it is much better than Sutent. There's improvement in um, progression-free survival, and the proof is in the overall survival. Uh, it's not yet reached, but it's going to be probably about six to eight months uh, better, uh, which is uh, pretty dramatic with this uh, therapy. Um, what is interesting is post hoc analysis looking at these subgroups Patients who had that favorable risk group, which is often patients who don't have things like anemia, hypercalcemia, or the relapsed patients, the patients who got Sutent in this group um, did have a really good response to Sutent, and they actually did better than the Ipinevo. Um, and the, the NCCN guideline panel were trying to decide whether they should make a caveat, should a favorable risk patient get Sutent, but um, they decided that, you know, it's post hoc analysis and really Ipinevo is still considered really potentially the standard of care. Um, but what about VEGF? These are clear cell tumors are VEGF driven tumors. This is a nice kind of schema looking at, you know, where the VEGF axis works and where all the drugs, um, basically the, uh, all these TKIs work on the endothelial cell. So you block the endothelial cell, it's an angiogenesis inhibitor, um, and the tumors can cause some regression. But what other effects do they have? And all these VEGF therapies may actually be immunomodulatory. Um, great work in Nature Communications uh, with the uh, prior um, kind of early phase study with the tezolizumab. Bevacizumab is an anti-VEGF antibody. Um, and it actually may have some immunomodulatory effects where you actually can upregulate uh, CD8 cells. You can actually increase transit into the tumor maybe uh, by making uh, the cells more permeable. Um, so there's some, uh, you know, maybe some synergy, not just additive, just adding drug A and drug B and having an additive effect. Uh, James Fink is a great immunologist at Cleveland Clinic, and he's been looking at, you know, the TKIs. The TKIs, Sutent, Pazopinib, are also immunomodulatory, and they may suppress 
Tregs. They may suppress uh, the um, the myeloid-derived suppressor cells. Um, so these therapies, it makes sense, obviously, a VEGF-driven tumor, but um, you want to block the VEGF pathway, but they may also make the cells more responsive to immune therapy. So the first effort to kind of put this into the clinic was looking at atezolizumab, uh, which is a PD-L1 agent, and it was combined in this randomized phase two trial, SUTENT, versus atezolizumab versus both. And it really was not power to really see significant differences on survival. But what they did see is that atezolizumab and avastin or bevacizumab were really well tolerated. And patients seemed to have better uh, uh, progression-free survival. And that gave the company Genentech and Roche uh, kind of um, the firepower to move it to a phase three trial. And this was presented this last year, patients first line uh, treatment naive, they had clear cell therapy, a clear cell RCC, and they were randomized to either Bev, Atizo, versus just Sutent. And again, we pick on the weak eye, which is now Sutent, and patients actually had improvement in progression-free survival. This is still ongoing, the survival analysis, but we expect the OS uh, uh, to be improved as well. Um, so this is not yet FDA approved, but we all expect that atezolizumab will, will be something which will be another first-line agent available. Um, and again, just looking at the, even the PDL1 patients, um, there may be a trend towards improvement in overall survival. Complete responses are seen as well. Um, just finally on the metastatic setting, there's interesting phase one trials as well, combining avelumab, another PDL1 agent, and axitinib. Um, in this phase one heavily pretreated trial, you saw complete responses. And the, the patients actually had pretty good uh, response rate of 58%. This is really unheard of in kidney cancer. Phase one trial, 58% response rate. And this led Pfizer to kind of move forward with this uh, trial. And then finally, the other metastatic setting is pembrolizumab, the Merck drug, uh, another PD-1 inhibitor. The response rate was 70%, which is, again, unheard of in uh, patients with kidney cancer, and really deep deep responses. For the waterfall plot, patients really have a lot of them having 70, 80, 90 percent reduction and patients really being alive two, three, four years later. Uh, the really, we care about the tail of the curve here and patients seem to be doing really well. Now, moving this on the last couple minutes in the adjuvant setting, well, we know it works in the metastatic setting. Can it be moved up? Okay, and we've done this for the TKIs. We tried TKIs for a year, whether it's Sutent or Serafinib, uh, and Assure is negative. S-Track is positive, but it really would, did not improve overall survival, Sutent, for a year. And people are not really giving that right now. Uh, Atlas was stopped. That's Accidentib. Protect stopped. Pazopative did not improve. Everest, we wait to see if Everlimus will improve outcome. But the immunotherapy mechanism of action of maybe using your own immune system to clear, eradicate micrometastatic disease is very exciting. And this is where we're moving with several trials. These four ongoing trials in the U.S. and abroad, really, they are a little bit different. They're all randomized phase three. They're all using either, you know, monotherapy checkpoint inhibitor, whether it's, you know, the um, 
PD-1 or PD-L1 uh, or dual uh, therapy in the, um, the Checkmate trial. Uh, the eligibility is a little bit different, but I'm going to highlight one study which is being done through the cooperative group, which is the PROSPER RCC trial. And this is different than the other ones because unlike the other ones, you remove 99% of the antigen available. If you have five cells that are hiding somewhere, let's say in the lungs, and you stimulate the body's immune system, are you going to have enough antigen to stimulate the body's immune system? Well, this trial is basically giving nivolumab upfront two doses, basically getting your immune system primed, okay? And then you go to surgery, and then you give adjuvant therapy. So if you can recognize the tumor cells there as foreign, and then take the primary out and continue it, this is kind of really interesting rationale. And this mouse data, this is slides from Lauren Harshman, the PI, um, when you look at the two different dosing schemes in a mouse, either dose with PD-1, take out the tumor, and then dose more, versus just take out the tumor and do pure adjuvant, if you see the arrow on the right, the mice are doing better if you're priming the immune system, and the short course of the systemic immune therapy prior to surgery seems to really upregulate the, um, the uh, CD8 lymphocytes and uh, have infiltration into the tumor. So this has some good rationale, though you do need coordination with the urologist and the medical oncologist, uh, an interventional radiologist, to kind of make a trial like this happen, and the accrual, unfortunately, has been a little bit slow. So in conclusions, it's really exciting time in kidney cancer. I don't think SUTENT really is going to be the standard of care uh, in the next couple of years uh, as first-line therapy. Dual checkpoint inhibitor therapy uh, is, you know, has significant activity. Uh, it appears to be pretty well tolerated. But clear cell is a VEGF-driven tumor, and combinations will work well rationally by blocking this pathway. But that also blocking this pathway may be immunomodulatory. Uh, the combinations uh, appear to be well tolerated. We expect things um, uh, like atezolizumab, BEV, to probably be approved. Um, uh, adjuvant therapy, the mechanism of action is extremely promising, and uh, we're hopeful that this will be the holy grail because uh, SUTENT, while approved, is not being used due to the toxicity and no improvement in overall survival. And urologists must participate in these trials, continue to advocate for our patients after the primary tumor is removed. Thank you. That's great. Outstanding. So we're going to move from kidney right into bladder. Uh, and so Peter Black's going to give that discussion. Thank you, Josh. Not surprisingly, uh, we're not quite as far along with bladder cancer as we are with kidney cancer. Um, and of course, we completely bypass this, this era of targeted therapy in bladder cancer, which makes us that more excited that we now have immunotherapy. Uh, they're my disclosures. They do include some of the manufacturers of these drugs we're going to be talking about. So just to start with a question, sort of a different clinical scenario. So based on clinical trial data, checkpoint blockade is indicated and FDA approved in all of the following patients except, so number one is a 57-year-old fit and healthy male with newly diagnosed metastatic urethelial carcinoma of the bladder. Number two is a 73-year-old male with new lung mets after adjuvant uh, MBAC chemo six months previously, and also after radical cystectomy. Number three is a 65-year-old female with poor renal function, newly diagnosed metastatic disease. Number four is a 71-year-old male with progressive metastatic disease uh, of the upper tract after prior 
chemo. And number five is a 59-year-old male with a pelvic recurrence eight months after neoadjuvant chemo, so gemsis and radical cystectomy. So which one is not, would not be approved? Does it go automatically or do I need to hit it? Oh, okay, sorry. So the uh, correct answer would have been the, the top patient who is cisplatin eligible and non-pretreated. The other ones are all either ineligible, uh, the patient with the poor renal function, or they've been pretreated either in the metastatic, adjuvant, or neoadjuvant uh, settings. So we'll go, we'll go into details in all of that. So I would like to uh, talk about the clinical trial data, which is not as extensive as Brian talked about in kidney cancer. I will discuss a little bit how it's moving forward into earlier disease states, and we'll talk a little bit about future perspectives. So there's a lot of evidence now uh, for five different drugs. These are all PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors uh, in bladder cancer. And you can see for the five drugs, these, this is objective response rate in the largest trials to date for each drug. And the, the response rates are, are very similar. We would consider them essentially to be the same. I don't think we make much difference, uh, for example, between the uh, tezolizumab on the, on the left and, and uh, say, pembrolizumab on the right. It's all around... Uh, 15 to 20% objective response rate. You can see for the tezolizumab and the pembrolizumab, these are large phase three trials compared to uh, dealer's choice chemotherapy, second-line chemotherapy, um, while, while the others are all just large phase two trials without a comparator arm. Uh, and of course, I should highlight this is in the second-line metastatic setting. So these are patients with metastatic upper tract or bladder cancer after prior platinum, either carbo or cisplatinum. So let's delve into the pembrolizumab trial, Keynote 45, in a little bit more detail, because this is the one that is ultimately most practice-changing. So these are patients with metastatic or unresectable urethral carcinoma. Um, they've had uh, at least one or possibly two prior platinum-based uh, chemo regimens and uh, meet the other criteria there. This is a 540-patient trial, and patients were randomized to either pembro or one of the three chemotherapies. Paclitaxel, docetaxel would be most commonly given in North America. Vinflunine uh, is commonly given in Europe. And the primary endpoint was overall survival in all comers. And you can see here a clear, clearly positive trial with a benefit for pembrolizumab in the red line compared to chemotherapy in the blue line, um, a 27% risk uh, reduction in death. Progression-free survival is interesting because you see on the very left-hand side of these curves that the, the red line, the pembrolizumab, actually drops a little bit faster than the blue line. So these patients, if they're non-responders, are going to progress rapidly. Um, and it's the tail of the curve where we're seeing the real advantage where the, the pembro tail is higher than the chemo tail. Ultimately, the excitement around immunotherapy in bladder cancer and other cancers is due to the durability of response. And that's what we see here with these swimmer plots. So the the red one on the left are the, the patients who've responded to uh, pembrolizumab, and it's marking how long the response goes on. And you see in the vast majority of patients, they have green arrows indicating that they're still responding at the time of reporting, whereas the black crosses mean that patients have subsequently progressed or even died after initial response. And for the chemo patients in blue, most of them um, have progressed or died. So durability of response is, is key. 
Now, the second trial in this setting, the second phase three trial, was in Vigor 211, which randomized patients, a very similar trial, randomizing patients to either tezolizumab or dealer's choice chemo. A uh, very similar patient population, 930 patients, so even bigger trial. The primary endpoint here, again, was overall survival, but they had a bit of a funny statistical design which, uh, with which they may have shot themselves in the foot, because this is ultimately a negative trial. What they did is that they, their phase one trial um, showed a very strong predictive value to immunohistochemical staining of PDL1. So they built that into the phase three trial while the phase two trial was running. And they designed this so that patients who were PDL1 positive by immunohistochemistry would be looked at first. And only if there's a benefit there would they look at then the, the 1 plus, 2 plus, 3 plus PDL1 patients. And only then would they look at all patients' intention to treat. And so in this analysis, if you look at the, the strongly positive PDL1 patients, the IC2 and 3, it was a negative trial. The overall survival uh, was the same, as you can see here. There's a little bit of a splitting of the lines uh, after about 10 months, but not enough to make this a positive trial. So with this subset of only uh, about 230 patients out of 930, this trial was deemed negative, even though if you look at the overall cohort and the intention to treat analysis, there is a benefit uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.85. So not as good as we saw with the other trial, but it still would have been positive if, they've, if they had designed it differently. Very interesting in this trial, um, I said in the phase one trial that the PDL1 staining was, was highly predictive. Here, it was not. So if you look at, at all patients' intention to treat, you see that uh, there's a 13% objective response whether you got chemo or uh, tezolizumab. If you look at the patients who were PDL1 positive, it was 22 versus 23. So the PDL1 staining was a prognostic marker. You did better if you had it, but it was not predictive for response to um, a tezolizumab. And uh, Josh will come back to the markers later. So the, this body of clinical trial evidence has led to approval of all five of these drugs. Now, for four of them, it's a, a, um, it was an accelerated approval contingent on further results. And so essentially, they have to deliver the phase three trials and see what the FDA does with it. And then with Pembrolizumab, they went to the FDA with their phase three trial, and they have a, a let's say, proper uh, approval. So what about patients who are cisplatin ineligible? That was the one scenario on the, on the question at the beginning. The, if we look in the middle in red, this sort of defines uh, the best we can do with established treatments in, in uh, cisplatin ineligible patients. This was an ERTC trial where patients were randomized gem carbo versus methotrexate carbo and vinblastin. And you can see the best we can really hope for is an objective response rate of about 36%, median survival of nine, nine months, and a one-year overall survival of 37%. And so atezolizumab and pembrolizumab have both been tested in phase two trials and have, have results that are encouraging enough, even though the, object, the objective response rate is, again, not that great, that they have been approved uh, by the FDA. Um, so these two drugs are available for cisplatin ineligible patients. So where, where do we go from here? Um, we have uh, these drugs established in second-line metastatic, first-line cisplatin ineligible, and of course the next obvious step and the, the large phase three trials are underway for, for all first-line patients regardless of cisplatin eligibility. They're also in the adjuvant setting. Uh, there are a couple of neadjuvant trials 
And we're even testing them in non-muscle invasive disease. So the adjuvant, I think, is, is also very exciting. There are three different drugs and three different trials that are more or less designed the same, where patients are randomized to drug versus observation if they have any T3, T4 disease or any node positivity, positivity or even if, just, if they have muscle invasive disease after prior knee adjuvant chemotherapy. And those are really the most um, the easiest patients, perhaps, to randomize because you don't have a good option for them. You're not going to give them adjuvant chemotherapy. So it'll be very, very interesting to see how these trials report over the next few years. In the BCG unresponsive setting, we have actually three trials. This is a cooperative group trial, a SWOG trial uh, that I'm involved with, where patients get atezolizumab over one year. There's a uh, Merck-sponsored trial with pembrolizumab, and there's also a smaller trial with dervalumab. Uh, so a, a paradigm shift where we're giving patients with localized disease or, or non-muscle invasive disease systemic therapy, and it's done generally uh, in combination with the medical oncologist, although we'll, we'll heal, hear from, from Kelly and, and Neil how the urologists can also be delivering this therapy. So this is really just the, the tip of the iceberg, and, and again, uh, Brian explained some of the advances in kidney cancer that are clearly ahead of, of bladder cancer. But there's no question that we're headed towards combination therapy. And those combinations can be almost anything you can imagine. Your favorite treatment plus immunotherapy, essentially. The, the first step, of course, is also to combine CTLA-4 inhibition with PD-1, PD-L1 inhibition. And uh, there are some reports out and, and, and trials completed. This is a Devalumab trial where AstraZeneca really went all out and um, did went straight for combination and first-line metastatic. And this trial has, a finish, has finished accrual and will probably report within the next year or so. And you can see that patients are randomized to standard chemo versus the PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitor by itself or the combination. Uh, so it'll be very exciting to see how that uh, does. There's already some evidence with the combination of IPI and NEVO as in kidney cancer. And you can see here also that two, two different doses were, were tested. And you'll, you'll see that the ipilimumab is only given for four doses, and then the nivolumab carries on as, as sort of a maintenance treatment after that, which is important for, for tolerability. And you can see here, especially on the, uh, in the smaller cohort on the, the left, the green one, that we're seeing, seeing higher response rates than we uh, would, would generally expect from just the, uh, the nivolumab alone. Checkpoint blockade plus chemotherapy is, there's also some recent data just published actually this, this week, in Europe, this month in European urology. Um, this was deemed a negative trial, so it was gem, cytobine, cisplatin plus ipilimumab, and the response rate was not better than what would be anticipated with chemo alone. Uh, but there are lessons to be learned from this type of trial regarding timing and, uh, and potentially other combinations. So there are multiple uh, checkpoint inhibitors. It's not just CTLA-4. It's not just PD-1, PD-L1. And um, we will have to familiarize ourselves as, as urologists uh, with these different targets. And there will be drugs uh, in this, many new drugs coming in this space. One that was reported at ASCO last year was a drug targeting IDO-1 in combination with, with uh, PD-L1 inhibition. And I think this is my, my last slide, an, an exciting trial that combines checkpoint blockade plus targeted therapy based on uh, molecular, molecular profiling of patients in the second-line metastatic setting. 
I think this is, is the future of, of trials uh, like this. So just in summary, immunotherapy in bladder cancer is, is very much a work in progress. Uh, the amount of clinical trial activity for bladder cancer is, is especially remarkable. Unfortunately, though, still 80% of patients are not responding. So although exciting, there's still a lot of work to be done. And uh, the possibilities are, are dizzying. There's so many uh, combinations of drugs, the, the use of markers, as we'll get into, uh, it's going to be hard to, to sort out moving forward. But at every, every meeting we go to, we can expect to be hearing about uh, the next breakthrough uh, in immunotherapy and bladder cancer. Thank you. Oh, that's great. So, you know, now we know why these drugs work. We know they, they do work. Um, I think the next question for us as urologists are, we give BCG, can we give immunotherapy? And so uh, it's funny, talking to some of the companies, they say, make sure you tell the urologist these are not safe drugs. Uh, as you know, urologists tend to be relatively cavalier. So we're very lucky here to have Terry Friedlander here today from Medical Oncology from UCSF to kind of talk to us about some of the toxicities, some of the side effects, and potentially how to manage them. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so we're going to talk about, uh, these are my disclosures, uh, and we'll start with a question. Um, which of the following statements about PD-1 inhibitors is false? And the first is that autoimmune toxicities can affect any organ. Second, that they tend to occur late in the treatment course. The third, that most autoimmune toxicities are manageable with oral or topical corticosteroids. Uh, D, that 10, about 10% 10 of patients receiving PD-1 inhibitors will require hospitalization for management of autoimmune toxicity. And the last, that the development of toxicities is associated with tumor response to treatment. So which one of those is false? So actually, most people got the right answer, which is that uh, most of these toxicities actually occur early in the treatment course. And that's a good thing, because we can identify it early and act on it. Um, and I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, so you've just heard, I think, two very good talks, or three very good talks, about the immunotherapy revolution. These are a list of some of the drugs that have been approved up to uh, 2018, and some of the diseases that they're approved for. Um, and as uh, Peter just said, there are really a number of immunotherapy combination studies coming. And these are just the approved checkpoint inhibitors in first uh, PD-1 and CTLA-4. Um, and the number of studies that are going on, I want to point your attention to the fact that it's combo with chemo, combos with hormone therapy, combos with radiation, combos with targeted therapy. There's really just about anything you can think of as being tested. This probably represents over 1,000 clinical trials that are ongoing. Um, so, you know, these are exciting days, right? What could go wrong? Um, and, you know, I think this is how a lot of people think about immune therapy. You know, it's new, it's exciting, we're energizing the immune system. It's really, you know, heady days. Um, and the problem is that the reality is that sometimes the immune system goes haywire, right? Sometimes we, we run into trouble. Um, and I think if, if you're going to be using these drugs in the future, you really have to be very cognizant of this because they, they really can uh, cause significant problems. Um, so what are the toxicities of immune therapy? So, so when I talk to patients about this, I say this is a systemic therapy. It has systemic side effects. 
And I, I will literally sit with the patient and go from head to toe and say, look, these drugs can affect your eyes. You can develop retinal problems or, or other you know, uh, problems in the eye. It can affect the thyroid or other glands. Uh, hypophysitis is common. It can affect the lungs. And pneumonitis can happen. That can be severe and fatal. Cardiovascular toxicities. Gut toxicities are very common. Diarrhea, perhaps one of the most common side effects. And then skin, uh, neurologic side effects, um, liver, and, uh, and others. So there really are a plethora of side effects. Um, and if, if you're going to be using these, these drugs, um, uh, I think you really have to have close uh, friendships, contacts with uh, medical oncologists, with internists, with uh, gastroenterologists, et cetera. Um, so I, I broke this uh, talk down into just five, five sort of, I think, big questions in the field. How common are these toxicities? When do they occur? When do they resolve? Um, does, does the toxicity predict for response? Um, whether if you have a patient in front of you who has a pre-existing autoimmune disease, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, can they get autoimmune, excuse me, immunotherapy? Um, and then lastly, how to manage these toxicities. And so I'll start with the first um, question, how common are these toxicities? And so this is a study uh, 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 of about, I think, nine clinical trials uh, pooling the sort of adverse event rates uh, for the common checkpoint inhibitors, ipilimumab, nivolumab, and pembrolizumab. Um, and what you can see is um, that, you know, autoimmune side effects are not uncommon. You know, they're anywhere from um, 50 to 60 percent of patients in these studies have some autoimmune side effect, but that could be sort of mild diarrhea all the way up to severe pneumonitis. And so in the dark bars here on the graphs, you can see the rates of severe autoimmune uh, toxicities are generally low. They're actually not more than 10% for any one individual toxicity. And when I talk to patients about this, I tell them there's about a 1 in 10 chance that they're going to need to go to the hospital to get treated for an autoimmune side effect. And I think that resonates with patients. Um, the, they're uh, toxicities of special interest. If you uh, have these studies open, these are always sort of, um, there's extra attention paid to these. These include um, hepatitis on the left or um, colitis, endocrinopathies, and pneumonitis, because um, some of these can be severe, and as I already mentioned, some of these can be fatal. Fortunately, they're uncommon, but they do happen. Um, is more better? Well, so you saw some data that said that, you know, a combination of ipilimumab plus nivolumab looks great in RCC. It's becoming the front line. This is data actually from melanoma showing uh, on the curves that the combination therapy in orange up top is, um, is, is better in terms of long-term outcomes uh, compared to giving either one of these drugs alone. Um, if you look at the, uh, the table, though, the toxicity rate goes up when you give these drugs together. And in this phase three study, um, patients, uh, there was an 88% overall adverse uh, event rate um, and a 40% grade uh, three or four adverse event rate. So these are severe toxicities. So you really have to be careful um, if, if you're going to be giving these drugs to really be essentially mindful of this and, be, and again, be ready to act. Um, so when do these occur? Um, fortunately, they occur early. I mentioned that already. This is a retrospective review of patients just getting nivolumab. So this is just PD-1 inhibitor. Um, again, about 70% of patients in these pooled studies had adverse events, but you can see almost all of them occurred, you know, before four months. That's the first set of, um, of bars. Um, as you go further and further out, it's just much less common to, to happen. Um, when do they happen, like, more specifically? So this, I think, is a great graph. This shows um, the time to onset of different toxicities. On the left, it's uh, skin toxicities in blue and GI toxicities in yellow. And on the right are other toxicities, like endocrine and uh, hepatic, pulmonary, et cetera. 
Um, so you can see that, that skin toxicities and GI toxicities happen early. So, you know, they happen within weeks. In fact, just this week, I started a patient on Ipinevo, and within days, he was calling me to tell, to say that he had sort of whole body pruritus. Right, we had to start treating that, and that's very consistent with what we see here. The tails on these curves show you that, that a lot of these toxicities resolve, but some of them uh, persist. So some of these toxicities, especially endocrinopathies, may never get better. You may just give patients replacement thyroid hormone um, and leave it at that. Um, some of the other toxicities do, do resolve, like for example, GI toxicities can usually be treated and, and, and can resolve if they're caught in, uh, in time. Um, so does toxicity predict treatment response? Um, so this is a really debated question. Um, there's um, uh, some data to suggest that yes, having toxicity may make a patient more likely to respond. Um, so there was a multivariable analysis I'm going to show you here, again, of patients receiving nivolumab. Um, and this is a, a sort of a, a complex uh, table, but I want to break it down for you. This looked at a total of uh, 570 patients. Of them, 31% had an objective response to nivolumab. Um, and what the authors did was then they broke it down to see whether the patients who responded, whether they were enriched for patients who had autoimmune toxicity or not. And what they saw was actually patients uh, of that group, 48% uh, uh, had autoimmune toxicity and only 17% uh, essentially had no toxicity. So there was sort of an enrichment of, of toxicity in some of these responders. Um, if patients had one or two adverse events, um, they had a 46% chance of responding. In this small group, though, if they had multiple autoimmune side effects, actually 84% of these patients responded. And stepping back a second, this sort of makes sense, right? If patients are having T cells activated throughout their body, it might make sense that if it's attacking their skin, their gut, and their thyroid, maybe it's also going to attack the tumor. Um, interestingly, patients who were treated with immunomodulators, that's what IM is there, uh, seem to fare just as well as patients who didn't. And I think there's always been a reluctance on, on our part to give patients steroids because we don't want to abrogate the immune response. Um, but there's really not a lot of data to say that treating patients for autoimmune side effects uh, impacts their likelihood of responding. Although that's really still a subject of, of debate uh, and investigation. So just the take-home points, this toxicity may increase uh, likelihood of response. It might be a pharmacodynamic biomarker. Um, and much of this is, uh, is true for the melanoma literature, which is just a few years older. Um, the, uh, the, um, we don't know yet if this is going to be true for the urologic uh, cancers. Uh, so, uh, fourth question, should patients with pre-existing autoimmune disease be offered immunotherapy? And this is one of the hardest questions to answer because almost all of our clinical trials have systematically excluded patients who have any history of autoimmune disease. And similarly, if a patient has toxicity, is it safe to retreat them with immune therapy once the immune therapy has, um, has or the uh, side effect has resolved? And so, um, the, the patient actually sent me this um, slide just a few weeks ago, and I think it's totally true. The, the, the only thing tough enough to kick my butt is me, right? And that's really what we're talking about. Um, I think there's some, some profundity to this. Um, so can patients who have pre-existing autoimmune disease receive PD-1 immune therapy? Um, so this is a retrospective study looking at patients who uh, were treated off-label, or essentially, I shouldn't say off-label, were treated out, out of the context of a clinical trial um, with, uh, with immune therapy to sort of look at outcomes here. Um, and in this study, not a very big study, only 52 patients, uh, the majority had rheumatologic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, 
Um, about a third of them had what was considered active disease by the investigators at baseline. And, and uh, almost 40% of them were actually actively on immune suppression at the time they were treated. Um, what they saw was a flare of the, uh, the autoimmunity in about 40% of patients. So this is real. If you have a patient in front of you who says they have a history of RA, you have to be careful about giving them this, this therapy. Fortunately, most of the side effects were grade one, grade two. They were treated with corticosteroids. There wasn't severe toxicity. Um, and they didn't really develop other autoimmune toxicities at a higher rate than would be expected. Um, so sort of taking this home, I would say you can cautiously consider treating patients with prior autoimmune disease with these agents. But again, you have to be very careful um, and, again, be ready to act. And you really need a multidisciplinary team, for example, the rheumatologist to be on board, or if it's a Crohn's patient with very mild Crohn's disease, to, to have your gastroenterologist ready to start treating that patient if, um, if they're going to get drug. Um, is it safe to restart uh, uh, PD-1 agents after a patient's had autoimmune toxicity? Um, again, there's not a lot of data uh, uh, to, to um, guide patients here. This was a presentation at um, uh, ASCO just last year, which, which looked at 38 patients out of a much larger group who had treatment delays specifically for immune toxicity and then were later retreated with therapy. And what I'm showing you here on the right is that about half of them in the orange and the, and the green had recurrence of their um, immune-related uh, event. A uh, quarter of them was the same event. Uh, a quarter of them had new events. Half of them actually didn't have recurrence of the toxicity. Um, most of these second adverse events were successfully treated with immune suppression. In this study, it was, I think the initial sample size was like 500 patients. There were two deaths due to the recurrent toxicity. Um, and there was only an 8% objective response rate. Uh, meaning if the, if the patient has stopped the drug for autoimmune toxicity, I think you have to have a real discussion about whether the benefits of retreating with the same drug or a similar immune checkpoint inhibitor really outweigh the risks. Because you know, that, that, those numbers aren't really um, that favorable. Um, interestingly, the, the converse of that, just stopping therapy for autoimmune uh, toxicity, actually doesn't seem to compromise efficacy to a large degree. So this is, uh, again, data from melanoma, but show, uh, showing that when, um, I believe this was nivolumab, is stopped, and you can see the blue bars show where, where the patients were stopped in the swimmer's plot, that 64% um, of patients maintained their responses. You can see the red arrows at the end of those um, plots. So these patients had ongoing durable responses. Some of these patients only had a few weeks of therapy, yet maintained this really robust immune response. Um, so it's not so clear that you need to retreat patients who stop for autoimmune toxicity. Again, whether this is true in GU cancers, we'll find out. Um, and lastly, how to manage these toxicities. So this is, I think, a conceptual framework. Um, starting at the top, we should try and prevent giving, I should say, we should not give these drugs to people who have known autoimmune disease if it's severe, so you can exclude those patients. You need to anticipate what's going to happen, so have a multidisciplinary team ready. You have to detect what's going on, which means checking the, the TSH, for example, checking liver function, um, and just being, being uh, uh, aware that these side effects can occur. If a patient comes in short of breath, thinking about getting chest x-ray, CT scan, and, and thinking about pneumonitis. Obviously treating, which I'll talk about in the next slide or two, um, uh, again in a multidisciplinary team, and then monitoring patients afterwards. Um, so this is sort of general toxicity management. If you read a, a protocol for immune therapy trials, this is like almost reproduced in every study. And essentially grade one toxicities usually can be managed sort of expectantly. Grade two, you really want to stop drug. 
Um, consider giving steroids. It really depends what the toxicity is, hepatitis or pneumonitis or uh, uh, colitis. You might really want to treat those. Those, However, you know, autoimmune um, endocrinopathies can just generally be replaced. You know, you give thyroid hormone. If it's hypophysitis, you may need to give multiple different um, uh, replacement therapies. Um, obviously, grade three and four, you need to stop therapy, consider admission to the hospital, again, get the entire team involved. And it really depends what the toxicity is as to how, how deep you're going to go in, in terms of managing this. Um, ASCO, uh, NCCN, and SITSI all have issued guidelines um, on how to do this. So you can refer to that if you have a patient that you're going to um, entertain treating with a, a immune therapy. Um, a, a modern immune therapy. Um, what are our tools? I think this, this may be pretty obvious. Corticosteroids are the mainstay of how we treat this, either topical um, budesonides and orally uh, administered uh, uh, corticosteroid that's not really absorbed from the gut. So it's useful in treating some, some episodes of colitis. Obviously, prednisone and, and methylprednisolone uh, are sort of the mainstays. Um, infliximab is the most commonly used anti-TNF agent. I think of this as sort of being the next level in terms of what you might need to treat. Um, this is used for grade 3, 4 for severe pneumonitis or severe colitis. Um, again, you'd want to have perhaps a rheumatologist involved or gastroenterologist. Um, tocilizumab is an anti-IL-6 agent that's used for severe um, toxicities as well, mostly for infusion reactions, things like that, which is... Um, Fortunately, un uncommon, but, but something you might need to think about, especially as we move beyond checkpoint inhibitors. Um, so very briefly, I'm going to do a, just a brief case. This is a, a real patient uh, who had metastatic urothelial cancer in his lung. He progressed despite cisplatin. He got treated with pembrolizumab. Um, he developed a rash after the first dose, and we treated that with uh, topical steroids. He actually got better. Um, one week later, he calls in with diarrhea. This is cut and pasted from our, our EMR. He was advised to sort of uh, uh, maintain his, you know, a, a soft diet, a gentle diet. Loperamide was added. Fortunately, his diarrhea really didn't get better. If you look at the CTC-AE, he had what was considered grade 2, so sort of in, in the, in the uh, middle between admitting him or not. We did an urgent colonoscopy. We saw that there were some infiltrates. Uh, he ended up getting budesonide, strict attention to diet. His diarrhea never really resolved, but it went down to grade one. Um, uh, lastly, he then developed shortness of breath a few months later, went to the ER. He had a CT scan that looked bad. This is really bad. You have to be very, uh, 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 you have to act quickly on this. Um, we couldn't tell whether this was infectious, autoimmune, et cetera. He was admitted to the hospital, ended up getting bronched. The bronch showed a lymphocytic infiltrate. Uh, he got worse. He went to the ICU, got intubated, ended up getting infliximab on top of IV steroids. Fortunately, got better over the next two weeks, went out on a steroid taper. He was put on um, Septra for PCP prophylaxis, which many people forget. And uh, we permanently discontinued the pembrolizumab. Fortunately, uh, uh, when we did scans a few weeks later, his tumor, this is the, the primary tumor in a diverticulum of his bladder, had significantly shrunk, and he's actually still having a response. So there is hope here. Um, so overall, these therapies are relatively safe, but you really have to have a high level of caution. Um, steroids, other immune suppression seems to work and doesn't impact response rates. And obviously, this multidisciplinary approach is best. Get to know these folks. They're going to be your friends. And with that, I'll stop. Thanks for your attention. That was great. So I think there's probably going to be varying roles that urologists are going to play, right? So there's going to be some folks who uh, are involved in the surgical part of it, 
doing TURs and getting back and forth, but good communication with our medical oncology colleagues. And then there's alternatives where some surgeons are going to try and give this themselves. Uh, so Kelly Stratton, uh, urologist from uh, University of Oklahoma, he's going to give us some description about what his experience at the University of Oklahoma. Thank you. So it's true I'm a urologist and I prescribe immunotherapy, so that's my disclosure. I will say that uh, some immunotherapy in some patients would be like driving a Lamborghini, um, but in other patients and other drugs, it's more like driving a forerunner, and that's what I do every day. So I'm hopeful that that's a good place to start. Uh, immunotherapy does represent the fourth pillar of cancer treatment after surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. And as urologists, we have for a long time differentiated chemotherapy and immunotherapy. We've had the division between BCG and mitomycin, and we have a division between sipulosal T and docetaxel. And so I think my mission here today is to provide uh, a perspective where that same difference between immunotherapy and cytotoxic chemotherapy is our approach as urologists. Uh, these are my disclosures. Here, here's the question that I propose is, all the following are potential challenges to urologist administration of immunotherapy, except A, malpractice coverage, B, hospital credentialing, C, access to infusion services, D, call coverage, and E, awareness of immunotherapy. So it's a trick question, I guess, but the uh, answer is awareness of immunotherapy. All urologists who treat patients who may receive immunotherapy are going to have to be aware of immunotherapy. However, if you wanted to administer immunotherapy, you may find that there are certain roadblocks like credentialing or assurance that you're covered by your malpractice plan. Also, access to an infusion center may be limited to some urologists. And some urologists may have practice partners who don't want to learn about immunotherapy and don't want to manage their side effects. So you'd have to consider that as you move forward. Our objectives today would be to establish the role of urologists in the immunotherapy era and to show the benefits of a multidisciplinary team, because I do think that that's very important. Describe some strategies to uh, educate the urology staff and then prepare for the future where we see an expanding indication for immunotherapy. So thought leaders in urologic oncology have predicted this day for some time. This is from five years ago where uh, Dr. Pinson and Lang speak of the use of systemic therapy as a potential option for urologic oncologists to provide comprehensive care that benefits patients. And I think that's our central goal is to try and help patients. And, and certainly here today, Dr. Shore, he's going to talk about prostate cancer treatment that's something that he's written about as well, chemotherapy for prostate cancer. When do you refer to a medical oncologist? In his conclusion, he speaks to the increase in number of treatments and their indications and how that's a potential opportunity for urologists to become involved in, in the treatment plan for these patients. So why is it that just now we're getting in, interested in prescribing immunotherapy? Well, if you look back, Sipulusal T, or ProVinch, was the first approved immunotherapy in 2010. 
then as you look at the immunotherapy landscape, there are not many urologic malignancies that, were, that had indications for immunotherapy. But more recently, bladder cancer has. And as we look at bladder cancer's approval and clinical trials, there's been a very rapid expansion of trials for bladder cancer and approvals as well. This has kind of blown up beyond what we see for kidney cancer. So there are many of those trials, but that this, um, this rapid onset of, of immunotherapy has really been pronounced in bladder cancer. So as a background, immunotherapy treatments are expanding. Urologists and medical oncologists are seeing many patients who may benefit from immunotherapy. And familiarity is gonna be the first step to bringing immunotherapy into our practice. When we talk to a patient about immunotherapy, as we do with other diseases where immunotherapy is a potential option, you wanna differentiate immunotherapy from chemotherapy. Many patients are uh, hesitant or reluctant to consider chemotherapy, particularly when they may not have metastatic disease, which is one of the things that we'll be talking about soon. So you have to clarify the difference and overcome barriers of patient uh, reluctance. You also wanna make sure patients aren't confused about what they're getting. This can lead to downstream problems, particularly if they go to the emergency room, they say that they're on chemotherapy, and in reality, they're on immunotherapy. The treatment and side effects differ. And so as we expand awareness with patients, we're also going to have to expand the awareness of all the potential providers who interact with patients who are undergoing treatment with immunotherapy. So that includes primary care, emergency room physicians, hospitalists, supportive services, and any of the specialists who would be taking care of patients who receive immunotherapy. It's critical that these people understand that immunotherapy may present itself in a way that traditionally we don't expect side effects to arise. The gastroenterologist, cardiologist, and pulmonologist are all increasingly becoming aware of the side effects from immunotherapy. This is kind of a perfect example, one that I took from my practice. A 69-year-old gentleman, he had a history of COPD, had a radical cystectomy about five years ago with a neobladder. He was currently undergoing immunotherapy by our medical oncologist for metastatic disease. He presented to the emergency room because of fever and a cough. He actually got admitted without any knowledge to his provider, but from the ER to the hospitalist for a UTI and possible pneumonia. His UA showed that it was dirty, of course, he had a neobladder. Chest x-ray showed ground glass opacities and lung nodules. Urology got consulted because the patient had a potential urinary tract infection. When we went to see him, obviously we became very concerned that he could have pneumonitis. And so these are the kind of things that you have to teach people about so that you can understand the, the side effects are important to manage. As urologist, even if you're not prescribing the medicine, many times you may be the front line to identify potential problems. Certainly multidisciplinary approach is gonna be important. We don't always deal with the Lamborghini or the accident, but we do have people that we work with closely. This is no different than our surgical colleagues who may perform some surgeries that we do if necessary, but otherwise they would be performing the surgeries. So when we approach immunotherapy, we want to create not only a good experience for patient care, but we want to educate ourselves and our, our coworkers, and we also want to consider clinical trials because this is an emerging treatment. It's really important that we get everyone on board and that we continue to learn. Urologist involvement will be facilitating those clinical trials.
a multidisciplinary clinic obviously can give you the framework where you may be able to have the support to begin prescribing immunotherapy. And there are several ways to, uh, to do this. So there's an all-in-one approach where the clinic space is all shared among specialists. And you can see a patient simultaneously and you can really be involved in their care. Virtual clinics also work, particularly if you can't have clinic on the same day as a medical oncologist or in the same location. And tumor boards are very important as well. So here's kind of a diagram where the urologist is really a central caregiver to patients who are receiving immunotherapy. The multidisciplinary clinic can bring a patient in. They can be seen by multiple specialists as necessary. And you can consider how you would incorporate immunotherapy and clinical trials. You can also run your tumor board through these kind of clinics. If you can't have your clinic simultaneously, you can try to have a virtual clinic. Really, this can be focused around the tumor board, or it doesn't have to be. You can have a, a really good communication line with your medical oncologist and speak to them back and forth about potentially implementing immunotherapy. Regardless, when you go to implement a, a multidisciplinary immunotherapy program, it's important to have a clinical champion, somebody who has experience and who can be helpful. You also want to list who will be involved in the team. That way, you can be sure that you have all your bases covered. Be familiar with the specific immunotherapy drugs, their side effects, also potential clinical trials. You can open those collectively. Many of these drugs can be expensive as they're new, so you want to engage financial services to make sure patients have the coverage they need. And lastly, you want to educate the staff. As we saw from the description before with the patient who had diarrhea, and from my patient as well, the clinic staff are many times the first people answering the phone. If they don't have that awareness, then you may miss something or delay it, and, and there really isn't a lot of wiggle room. There's ways to educate the staff. There's CME opportunities. The NCI has a, has a one-hour training that's quite well. It's both a physician and a nurse talking about experience with uh, their patients. ASCO University also offers CME credits for training. And your staff can use their respective organizations to gain those credits. Obviously, you want to be focused on treating the side effects from immunotherapy before you prescribe them. The, the, the challenge is that the side effects present themselves as a wide spectrum of symptoms, but awareness and vigilance is the most important thing to prevent yourself from getting into trouble. And really having faith in your staff to be able to tell you, this patient has vague complaints. I'm not really certain what's going on. Can you help me? You have to have an open mind to that. Otherwise, you may miss the pneumonitis, colitis, or endocrinopathies that initially present subtly and are, is the golden opportunity for intervention. This is what I give my patients so that there's no confusion when they go to the ER. It's a wallet card, and on the back I write exactly what medicine they're taking. I put my name. Sometimes I'll even put my cell phone number. And just this afternoon I got a call from one of my patients who was having a new pain. That way when they go to the ER, they can give that to the ER doctor and say, my doctor told me to call you or for you to call him whenever I get here. And it just really clarifies everything. I got involved in prescribing immunotherapy because we wanted to open clinical trials, particularly for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Our medical oncologist colleagues didn't have familiarity, and so they asked me to become involved. In May 2016 is when we started prescribing immunotherapy for BCG refractory non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, some of the trials that we previously presented. And then we continued to grow the program over time. 
However, as we grew the program, our facility understood that there could be some problems with our setup. And so they came to us and asked us to help clarify a few things. The first was they wanted to make sure that we had a multidisciplinary team. And we, of course, agreed that we would present all of our patients who may be candidates for trial or tumor board. They also asked that we identify a medical oncology champion. And we've done that. We work together closely to make sure that we have devised an appropriate treatment plan and we're prepared for adverse events. They asked us to keep a log of all the patients who are receiving immunotherapy so that our triage staff will know immediately when a patient calls from who's receiving uh, one of these drugs and the treating physician can be alerted very quickly. We also have a multidisciplinary cross coverage pool because not all of my uh, colleagues want to manage these side effects and so I rely on collaboration with medical oncologists. Certainly if any of the patients are admitted, we handle that as a team-based approach as well. That way we have the collective knowledge of everyone who's working together. Much like you would have a general surgeon help you if you had a patient with a small bowel obstruction. Sure, you know how to manage that, but it's always good to have backup. There may be some roadblocks that you may encounter whenever you go to implement one of these programs. Certainly credentialing can be important. The hospital probably is only going to care if you're doing inpatient treatment and none of the drugs that we really are interested in are received in the inpatient setting. But in an infusion center or cancer center certainly will want to know that you're credentialed. Unfortunately, many of the credentialing bodies haven't separated immunotherapy from chemotherapy. So this may be an opportunity for you to update your policies and procedures. A group practice may also want you to have buy-in from their medical oncologists as well. And I think many medical oncologists are willing to help. Malpractice insurance is something else. Fortunately, we're self-insured, so it wasn't as much of a concern. But depending upon your insurance policy, you may need to make sure that you have that coverage. This is an opportunity to make sure that any policies or procedures are updated to reflect the changing landscape. When we went back and looked, our policies had no mention of advanced anti-androgen treatments, T. There are many other agents that are clearly within the wheelhouse of urology that weren't reflected on our policies. Anticipate that the role of immunotherapy is going to expand. You saw that there's so many trials that are looking at uh, neoadjuvant, or uh, the adjuvant setting. There's also second-line treatments for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. I don't think every medical oncologist is going to want to handle that, and many people don't have time to form these tight unions. So if these drugs are effective, we can expect that urologists are going to prescribe them. There's also new routes of administration, ones that don't have the same hurdles, like intravesical administration or oral agents or more convenient IV dosings. So we can expect that urologists will get, the, get an opportunity to administer these drugs if we find them to be effective. This is the current non-muscle invasive bladder cancer immunotherapy trial list. Look at all those trials. If any of those trials are positive, we can expect that there's going to be a wave of patients who could benefit from these agents. Are we going to let the fact that this is an IV administered drug be an impediment to helping those patients? And are we going to be able to form these close collaborations as quickly as we need to? It may be a real big challenge. In conclusion, urologists are valuable members of a multidisciplinary immunotherapy team. We need to identify patients and discuss with them to facilitate treatment. 
it doesn't matter who you are or where you are. If you treat patients with bladder cancer or kidney cancer and soon to be potentially prostate cancer, you're going to have to deal with immunotherapy. The patients are going to receive it, and you may be the person who gets a call when there's a side effect. The expanding indications and novel treatment options are going to provide urologists more opportunities in the future. I'd be certainly happy to help anybody if they want to implement a program at their facility. Thank you for your time. Great. So our next speaker is uh, Neil Shore. So Dr. Shore has experience in treating advanced urologic cancers over uh, multiple years. So we wanted to kind of get an experience of uh, how does urologists do that? Uh, does it make sense for them to do that? And sort of what's going on already? Thank you. Thanks very much, Josh. It's great that we're having this course here. It's so much has happened in, in a very short period of time since the approval of atezolizumab in, in, in 2016. So um, I don't know if everybody in the group, in the audience, knows what LUGPA stands for, so I'll give a little bit of an explanation of that. But before I do that, here's the first uh, ARS question. I think it's the only one I have. Which of the following statements is true? There are four approved immuno-oncologic therapies for GU oncology. There are six approved immuno-oncologic therapies in GU oncology. In 2018, only medical oncologists may administer IO therapies. And fourth, there are five approved immuno-oncologic therapies with uh, US uh, CPT codes and reimbursable implementation for approved indications. Okay. Good advance. There we go. No responses. No responses. Okay. How many of the um, att physician attendees in the um, in the room right now are from the U.S.? Just raise your hand. Okay. All right, do I click again to get yeah. the response? Yeah. Oh, I didn't get it. There we go. Okay, so the answer is, is the D. There's five approved uh, IO treatments, and um, there are CPT codes, and there are, is a reimbursable implementation for all of these. That's kind of what I'm going to go through here and, and some of my own personal experience. So why, you know, and I, I, I'm going to, I think my presentation will really dovetail nicely to Dr. Stratton's, uh, why should urologists be interested in immuno-oncologic uh, therapy? Uh, well, the, we will be seeing so many of these patients, and in the United States, uh, and what LUGPA is, is a, it's, a, it's a sort of a guttural acronym for Large Urology Group Practice Association, and it started 10 years ago. Uh, for independent-based urology practices. And essentially what's happened is, is you've seen a, an aggregation in the U.S. about pra practices. So our, our, we're right now about 150 member practices, about 2,500 urologists in the U.S. The average size group is around 17. That doesn't include advanced practice providers. So the logical thing that's happening in, in, in the U.S. is we're getting larger, bigger groups 
about 25% of our groups are, are, are getting larger than 50 um, uh, physician members. And so logically, if you're going to have these big groups that got together mostly for uh, a lot of administrative purposes, but at the, the clinical benefit is to form collaborative strategies and specialization. So a theme that I'm going to talk to you about today is the importance of specialization, and that is having an advanced GU oncology clinic. So if you have a large enough group and you have folks in your group who are doing really great cutting-edge work, doing radical cystectomies and doing them well and following good protocols, and invariably patients will end up with metastatic disease, so do you just send them out somewhere else? Can you treat them in a multidisciplinary way? Can you uh, collaborate well with your medical oncologist if you don't want to be giving platinum-based therapy or to patients who are platinum-ineligible or patients who progress after platinum? That's in today's approved therapies. But what's really exciting and should be very sexy to urologists is the fact that there will be other strategies for bladder sparing strategies and the use of IOs, as well as in the non-muscle invasive bladder cancer space, assuming these trials are positive. Right now, you heard earlier excellent presentations where it's only uh, approved in uh, metastatic disease first and second line. So um, th that's really the key thing. And, and the bladder sparing strategies and the non-muscle inv invasive uh, uh, bladder cancer both in BCG-naive and unresponsive. And one of the things that's already been said here is we have more trials than we probably have patients. And that's because there's just so much interest and excitement and there's such a plethora for combining various agents with IOs. So when I was asked by Josh to tell me about the LUGPA experience, I'm really going to tell you my personal experience because, you know, it's a, you, ask, you, you pull one group and you get, you know what you get when you pull one LUGPA group, you learn what one LUGPA group is doing. And there's a lot of heterogeneity across the country and, and all countries in what urologists do. And quite frankly, there's a lot of heterogeneity in academic centers as well with urologists and medical oncologists. But um, personally, I've been administering taxane-based therapy since 2007 and 11. I cut you know, my teeth on clinical trial work. And then since the FDA approval of all these CRPC therapies, I've been administering all of them. And since 2016, I purposely have given every one of the IO-approved therapies because I really wanted to demonstrate to the, the, the manufacturers that you don't leave urologists out of the loop. Now, I would be the first one to tell you that there, you can see significant toxicities in a minority, fortunately, of these patients. And so there, you can't approach this as a dalliance, as a dabbler. You've got to be really wanting to do this. And I'm going to talk about some of the things other than just being a physician champion and with a lot of enthusiasm. You have to have a nurse champion and you have to have an administrative champion. So um, and there are a whole slew of phase two and phase three sequencing and combination studies uh, that we're doing, and you can see the list here includes both on the prostate and the bladder side, looking at PARP inhibitors, IDOs, FGFRs, and combination IOs, and you heard great presentations already here today. So LUGPA is 150 member practices, and we did a recent survey, and 50% of the LUGPA practices in the United States have designated advanced prostate cancer clinics, or what we call APCs, okay? So that would be uh, close to um, 1,200 urologists across the country are giving Abby, Enza, CIPT, Radium, and uh, many of them are looking now to give taxane-based therapy based upon the uh, charted the latitude and the stampede data. 
So um, hurdles to overcoming immunotherapy integration in urology. Do I have access to an uh, applicable patient population? I think the answer is unequivocally, in the, in, of course. If you're a large enough group and you're doing cystectomies, unfortunately, patients will progress. Or if they're cystectomy ineligible and they have muscle invasive bladder cancer, they will either be platinum ineligible or platinum progressors. And so there's no doubt that you have these patients, especially if you're in a large enough group. Now, the administrative and the nursing roles cannot be minimized. These are extremely important. My nurse is integral to my sanity. So she does an enormous amount of the educational work for my, uh, my patients. She gives her phone number. I give my phone number. I do exactly what Kelly does, is making sure that these patients have us pretty much at their beck and call. And, you, you, and so you might say, well, oh, my gosh, I can't, I really don't want to do that. It's not that common that we get the call. And frankly, when I do get the call and they go to the emergency room, I want to be called. My partners know that they can call me. It's the beauty of having a cell phone. Uh, I'm always available, as is my nurse. So this is how we do it. Uh, in community practice, I have 14 partners and we have 10 advanced practice providers, NPs, PAs. And then as it comes to, I'm going to show you a whole series of slides because when you're in community, as opposed to in academic centers, you know, the bottom line, the dollar does stop with you. And so you have to be very careful about any uh, expensive oncolytic therapy in bladder, kidney, prostate, and then other expensive uh, th things that we manage because the business of healthcare is something that's very important. And you don't want your partners who are not involved in these things coming back and saying, why are we losing money? So you have to take really good advantage of patient assistant programs and all of the five companies that have these approved IOs have very elaborate and very user-friendly ways to make sure that you can uh, navigate through the uh, reimbursement system just like they are and do so in advanced prostate cancer therapeutics. And the bottom thing here is the clinical trials. That's my passion and probably all of our faculty here. We have more trials than we have actually patients, okay? This is the big problem because there's so much excitement right now and there's such a plethora, I think, as Peter Black said, of all these combinatorial studies. And that's why we're going to continue to hear about this. And that's where we really need to get uh, as many sites up and going that can administer therapy and do it well, whether you're doing it in a multidisciplinary way or you're doing it amongst, within your own center, this is how we'll make uh, uh, our trials will get approved, uh, get enrolled and accrued. So here's just CIPT, and basically it's, I'm going to show you really quickly, CIPULA-CELT only approved in the United States. The year-on-year, -year, the quarter-on-quarter -quarter growth, it's all happening in the large community practices. And uh, this is just, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly for purposes of time. Here's the codes. It's not a problem getting these things done and getting them, you know, reimbursed. Uh, not difficult whatsoever. There is, a, it, it, this is, you know, easy stuff, uh, and we hadn't really addressed it, but I wanted to have this on here. I think Josh wanted that as well. But when you look at the SIPT or the ProVenge enrollments by the market sector, the big growth is in uh, the community. Uh, and community urology, 29% in 2014. Now look at 2018. And so cannulating a vein, looking for cytokine release, understanding immune-related adverse events from just uh, giving a T-cell activated therapy, urologists in the community uh, undertook this hurdle, and you see the, the, the rather impressive growth. And you, we could debate the use of Cipua Celti, uh, but there's no doubt that it, it, it's here to stay in the United States. 
So atizolizumab, you know, was really, you know, uh, you can go through here, really note the, the approval in May 2016, Genentech Roche, the largest biotechnology company in the world, uh, which is really putting its resources behind clinical trial development. And just like with CRPC, where every, the first drugs all got approved post-chemotherapy, then pre-chemotherapy, and now we're seeing them moved up proximally in the disease continuum, the same thing is happening in bladder cancer. We have to get the trial, we have to have the trials accrued and show the, the evidence-based data to, to see if they have a role in the proximal disease uh, uh, management. But they, do, they all are in NCCN um, uh, guidelines, and all of these five, o, uh, five IOs. Now, here's the various billing and coding things. And, you know, uh, you know, a lot of us, myself included, my eyes glaze over when I start looking at all this acronym soup, word salad soup. But this is how you get reimbursed in the United States. And getting these codes is very easily uh, attainable by just directly contacting the companies. So this, these are codes for atizolizumab. Um, there's some, uh, you know, this basically speaks to the, the finances. Uh, I thought in this course today we might have administrators here. I'm not sure that we really do. You can see how the drug is delivered as a set dose, 1,200 milligrams, 60 minutes every three weeks. Pembrolizumab was the next uh, drug that was approved, given by, uh, you know, and sponsored by and manufactured by Merck in the United States. Approved in May 2017. Why is it important to recognize that this was just approved a year ago? And so our medical oncology colleagues, in addition to the urology community, are all learning and gaining um, uh, education through courses like this uh, uh, in rapid fire. So we're all learning together. But again, I make the, the really strident point, you have to be dedicated to doing this. And if you're just going to consider yourself a generalist, you're obviously not going to take on this challenge. So here's just some more information on the billing and coding of Pembro. Um, you know, they, in all of this information I got from my administrators, courtesy of the companies directly, so that we would be able to bill and code and have a, uh, a positive reimbursement pathway. Um, additional codes, as you can see here, a lot of them overlap. Um, you know, in, right now in the volume-based healthcare system of the United States, as opposed to a value-based healthcare system. And so we live in sort of this little bit of the schizophrenia where we're tr transitioning presumably to bundled payment or capitated payment, but still by and large, uh, this is a reimbursement pathway, the expensive oncolytics, which is frankly beneficial for those who uh, recognize the importance of uh, the ASP 4.3% model for most of these Medicare patients. Here's Nevo, this is BMS, approved in February 2017. First line now in combination with IPI, which is really a big deal. You saw great trial data that was presented on this. I was giving IPI trials with Israel Lowy back in the day and recognized the toxicity. We were, we were trialing it in prostate cancer. Uh, but now we see how, with things over time, you see the reduced dose. Combining it now with Nevo was actually better tolerated than sunitinib. So rather amazing with also a, a greater efficacy of response. So I think it's a really big you know, change in, the, in the, the, the renal landscape. The various codes as well that you can use for Nevo, just like with Pembro and with Atizo. And here are the various codes. Um, all of these are approved. All of these have codes. All of these are um, um, lucrative based upon the existing volume um, model of healthcare in the United States. 
Derva, this is AstraZeneca, or also known as uh, Avelumab. Um, and so uh, basically it also has NCCN approval as well. And there are ongoing trials looking at Dervalumab. They're just like all these other companies that I mentioned to you and what you've seen earlier, aggressive trials in the NMIBC trial population for BCG unresponsive patients. So for urologists in the room, that's your wheelhouse, right? Now you can give these drugs potentially in trial in combination in a multidisciplinary team, or you can uh, arguably uh, uh, learn how to give it and give it yourself. It's a lot more user-friendly for patient um, involvement in trials, which is what I do. Okay, so here's, um, uh, um, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I, uh, uh, Infinzi is Dervalumab, Avelumab is, uh, or I might, I, I might be, I may be trans, uh, it's, no, uh, um, Bavancio is Avelumab, Dervalumab is uh, Infinzi. They have all these different names, and it's a, it gets you a little bit confused, but you see the different codes that you can come up with, and there's a little bit of difference in these, in these companies and the codes that they'll give you to get your reimbursement. So here you have, again, Avalumab, Bavancio, Dervalumab is Infinzi, so just to make, make that clear distinction. Uh, there's a Medicare allowable uh, uh, amount for all of these, which has to do with your administration codes. Um, every single one of these drugs that you get pre-authorization for uh, should be done just like you do with advanced castrate uh, CRPC drugs. So here's a sort of a bridge table of looking at all the different pricings that are allowed. You know, you see the CPT codes. I asked that in that question. They have different dosaging schedules as opposed to a set dose versus being given drug uh, by a body weight. The Medicare allowable, the sequestration, that goes back to the Affordable Care Act where there's a four point uh, goes from 6% to 4.3% of the ASP, and that's a Medicare issue in the United States. There's an insertion code that everyone can put in for administration. So just like any other very expensive oncolytic, there's a way to do these things that you should not be putting yourself at any sort of financial risk. So what have we done for education purposes? We started Bladder Cancer Academy in June of 2017, organized by MedReviews, which is a, 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 a medical education company, and LUGPA. And uh, we invited 50 LUGPA members and 50 urology and medical oncology fellows. All expenses paid for them. And then we had our second Bladder Cancer Academy. It's actually bladder and kidney. We do both. It's a day and a half long meeting. Mm -hmm. We had our second meeting in um, St. Louis this year. It's a nice opportunity to get really intensive education as opposed to a two-hour course really a full day and a half with a lot of opportunity for, for further conversations. We had a Eurocare Live program. We did one this year. Myself, Noah Hahn, is a medical oncologist at Hopkins. Ashish Kamat, who's a urologist at MD Anderson, and a colleague of mine, Jonathan Henderson, who's in the large group in Shreveport, Louisiana. So this was a live television broadcast, and it's archived to really focus on how do you establish an advanced bladder cancer clinic, we had a CME program at LUGPA this year, which was a five-hour CME program on optimizing your geo-oncology cancer clinics of expert. And again, it, you've got to really be dedicated and interested and in wanting to do this, much like Kelly Stratton told you he's doing it. So it, what if I choose to ignore immunotherapies? Well, what's the implication? The implication is your role in the bladder cancer disease continuum is you may completely miss out on the applica application for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, bladder, uh, uh, bladder sparing strategies, 
and even potentially on neoadjuvant muscle invasive bladder cancer strategies if you have a large uh, volume of cystect radical cystectomy within your clinic. You know, do you care about the financial impact? Unfortunately today, uh, we have to care about that as much as I don't like to care about it, and I don't like to think about the economics, but the business of healthcare is front and center in everything that we do, both in the community and in academia. So I leave you with this. This is Carrie Struggs in 1996. You know, she had, had, had popped uh, multiple tendons in her ankle, and she had to do a second vault in order for the U.S. team to win a gold medal as a team event. They'd never won one before, and she managed to actually go and did the vault. She stuck the landing, and then, you know, he got carried out as they were leaving to get their medal by uh, and uh, 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 Bella Caroli over here, who was, was, was admonishing her on with the, with the phrase, you can do it, you can do it. So that would be my advice to urologists. If you have the desire and the inspiration, uh, you can do it. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to sort of finish the discussion here today just talking about biomarkers of response for immunotherapy. Uh, and this section really comes from the concept that, as Neil said, that we have more uh, trials than we do patients. So how do we find the right patients for the right drugs? Uh, so this is the immunogram, and I kind of think about why people fail, why they have their cancers progress, and from an immunologic perspective, uh, there's probably one of at least three reasons, but this is a simplified way that I think about it, is that they either don't, their tumor doesn't have enough antigens, they don't have enough activity, enough difference from their own body, uh, it's not immunogenic enough, so it doesn't create enough of, a, of an immunity, and then there's not enough immune response. So uh, we, you know, we kind of started talking a little bit about this with Peter, but there's a difference between prognostic and predictive biomarkers, and I think it's just important to address those here. So prognostic biomarkers, you can see in this first probably complicated picture that there's a difference between cohort A and cohort B, and they have about the same 10% difference after therapy. And, you know, you can see here that in cohort B they did a little bit better, but in this case the biomarker, you know, is involved, but it doesn't seem to be different between groups. Whereas a predictive biomarker is a little different, and you can see those with the biomarker tend to have a better response. So for example, PSA is a good prognostic biomarker. If it, if it's, uh, if it goes down, that's good in general, but it's not predictive. Whereas there are certain predictive biomarkers we're gonna talk about today. So I, I'd probably th thought we'd just start with PD-1, PDL one that's kind of where every, all of this began. So this is uh, one of Roy Herb's er early uh, uh, immunohistochemistry uh, from nature, and this is looking at where PDL1 is expressed. And you can see there are PDL1 negative tumors, and then there are tumors that express PDL1 in the immune cells, uh, PDL1 in tumor cells, and there's tumors that express both. And you can see there's varying amount of expression depending on tumor types. Uh, for example, in bladder cancer, it can be anywhere from 1% to 10%, some as high as 25%. So this expression of is PDL1 expression a biomarker, I would have told you potentially before today that uh, it doesn't look like it is anymore. Uh, and a lot of that data kind of comes from the Invigor2, um, 210. So this is the Invigor2, 210 study. So these are patients who uh, got uh, atezolizumab, and you can see that you know this data was pretty robust. So those who had high levels of PDL1, uh, that kind of, as Peter was saying, led to formulating that this was a predictive biomarker. But as you can see, you can't really make 
assumptions about predictive biomarkers with a single phase two study. So there's no, you can't be predictive because there's no comparison here. So this kind of led to the Invigor 211 data that Peter talked about. So this is immunohistochemistry for PDL1, and you can see once again that there, it's expressed on around tumors and expressed in immune cells. And in and of itself, that may actually be prognostic. One of the things that's concerning about this is what are we actually talking about? Because these are the five drugs that Niels has talked about, but the problem is that each one has its own, in addition to being, you know, some of them are PDL1 and PD1 targets, but each one of these antibodies is different. Uh, and each one has a different way of being called positive. So we have some that are as low as 1%, and then some that are as high as 25%. So to say that tumor is really PDL1 positive or negative really depends on the assay. So this is a nice study from lung cancer. So this is the same tumor stained with four different antibodies, and you can see that these are very different. So you can call some positive and some negative, and this is the same tumor tissue. So this led to the interpretation of this data. This is, and a lot of this is going to be, unfortunately, from bladder. Uh, so once again, looking at survival from Invigor 211, and once again, as, as uh, Peter talked about, the reason why we call this a negative study is that when patients were stratified by PDL1 stratus, there really was no difference uh, in overall survival. But I would say that that kind of, you know, it's interesting that as of, I believe it was today, while we were all here, uh, the FDA said that, it, you know, in patient Patients on trial comparing chemotherapy to PDL1 agents, if they're PDL1 low, the early interpretation of the data is such that uh, if they're PDL1 low, they shouldn't be, on, be getting PDL1 inhibitors. So I think there's more to come for that data. The data based on that's not released, but it looks like as much as we thought PDL1 may or may not matter, uh, I got a flurry of emails from sort of FDA today saying you should probably be including these in, your, in our trials going forward. So immune signatures, I think this is also obviously involved in how tumors are going to respond. I like the concept that, you know, there's probably three different kinds, of, at least, of tumors. There are tumors that are considered deserts. There's are those that are uh, sort of islands where there's a little bit of excluded tumor with some CD8 cells in them. That's what's staining here. And there are some that are hot tumors where there are already CD8 tumors. And this is a nice figure from a recent paper uh, on atezolizumab, where you can see the tumor here is largely excluded. There's really almost no brown cells here. So in this case, the CD8 cells are pretty much kept outside of the tumor. And so this is a nice uh, combination of a couple studies showing that CD8 is likely prognostic for bladder cancer in and of itself, and patients who get a cystectomy, those with high levels of um, of CD8 cell or CD3s in this case are do really well. This is data from Randy Swice. Once again, looking at inflamed tumors overall have a different set of gene expression and probably respond differently. So this data kind of got translated into different gene expression signatures. And if, depending on which one of the five antibodies you're talking about, everyone has their own sort of pro-immunogenic, pro-inflammatory, pro-immune response signature. So this is, you know, in the top looking at survival curves by PDL1, sorry, PDL1 status. But then at the bottom, looking at these gene signatures, and in and of themselves, they don't appear to be necessarily robust in the setting of PDL1. But if you do start looking at CD8 expression signatures, and this is once again the Invigor 211 and 210 data, those who have the highest level of T cell effectors tend to have the greatest amount of CR. Once again, if you break them up by quartiles, the highest level of CD8 signatures, and this is, this is their signature shown here. 
So the thought is maybe if, some, if you have a patient which has these tumors and, they have high, and they're inflamed, that they're going to potentially do better long term. I think probably the one that we're all the most interested in, and this has kind of been shown across tumor types, is total mutation burden. And once again, total mutation burden is likely a surrogate for neoantigen load. So this is that same Invigor 211 data, that if you go and you break up the tumors and you just cut them in half by a TMB of around 10, you can see that data that was not positive actually starts to start looking positive with a hazard ratio of uh, 0.68. So you can see that although it's not positive for the uh, PDL1, not positive for gene expression signature, if you look at those with a high TMB, they tend to respond really well. And then once again, this is all the Invigor 210 data showing that those with the highest quartile of TMB have the best response. Um, so how do you get high TMB? Well, mechanistically, you probably get high TMB by having a DNA damage repair mutation. Uh, this is the data from Invigor 210 looking at the high frequency of uh, DNA damage repair mutations in these tumors. The other way you get it is you have high levels of Apobec. So this is Apobec expression in the TCGA. These are obviously patients that didn't get immunotherapy. These are just all comers in the TCGA. And those that have the highest levels of Apobec tend to have the highest survival. This is data from, uh, from MSK. Once again, those who had people had their tumor sequence, and if they had a deleterious DDR mutation, that's shown here in blue. So if you're blue and then the yellows are the other DDR alterations, you can see that those who had the greatest response to their tumor had the greatest uh, change in their tumor overall. Once again, thinking that if you have a DDR mutation, it, it may predict chemotherapy response, but also immunotherapy response. It's interesting that not all mutations appear to be the same. So here's some data largely from kidney cancer. And we couldn't really figure out why kidney cancer responded so well to immunotherapy. It doesn't seem to obey the same rules as lung and melanoma and, and bladder cancer. But what's really unique about kidney cancer is a high rate of indels. And so indels are really interesting because it causes a frame shift. And those mutations seem to be very interesting because you know, the frame shift seems to really create a very unique new antigen. And so, you know, this is, this is nice data from, uh, from a number of tumors from the Swanton group, as well as I think Ellie Van Allen was also on there, once again showing a high response to these tumors to, uh, to immunotherapy. So it seems that those indels cause frame shifts and those have a different response. So tumor subtype, I think that's an interesting thing in bladder cancer that we're looking at. And the thought is that maybe these tumors have a different physiology or a different intrinsic biology. Once again, this is the atizolizumab data from Invigor 210 and 211, initially showing that the cluster 2 or the uh, immune infiltrated tumors seem to be different. In their updated data, it seems that those that are genomically unstable, shown here, have the highest rate of response to uh, atezolizumab. So I think there's more to come on the role of subtyping in bladder cancer. Uh, this is sort of how they finish their, their kind of unite, un, uh, very nice data on uh, biomarkers that you know, one of the reasons that tumors may not respond is that the T cells just can't get into uh, the tumor. And so it's interesting, if you look at those who have the highest amount of TGF-beta expression seem to do the worst. So uh, this seems to be a very reasonable target for the next generation of combination therapy. And as shown here, that those who have the highest TGF-beta response don't do as well. So just putting all that together, how can you start looking at these patients? So once again, this is from uh, this is Thomas Powell's data, putting you know TMB together with uh, PDL1, and once again, you can start to see those curves come together when you're looking at that. So once again, you have tumors that tend to have T cells in them and have the highest amount of uh, neoantigens. Uh, this is kind of a nice way that once again the tizolizumab group sort of looked at things. So 
On the left here, these are the desert tumors. It doesn't seem to matter what you do for them. You just can't get a good response. These are sort of the excluded tumors, and for them, having a high, you know, having low levels of TGF-beta, as well as uh, the high T and B tended to be a predictor of response. And then it's a little different than the inflamed tumors, where CD8 as well as T and B seems to matter. So that is the end of my talk and sort of the end of our course. I was wondering if uh, people had questions. We could have all of our speakers come up and uh, kind of participate in any questions that anyone may have. All right. Well, once again, thank you to our speakers. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Thanks again. See you in Chicago next year. CME is available for today's podcast at university.auanet.org.